Well, it's good to be with you this evening and uh, good to see those who were here last night and uh, others, Pastor Shipman and others, good to be together. Um, I don't like to do the commercial thing, but I do have a few books. Um, unfortunately, we sold more than we expected um, in the previous places, so uh, this is the, 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 you may be familiar with that one, we, uh, this is a devotional, um, I can't remember how many uh, but they're designed to read one article at a time, and it's uh, building blocks for encouragement. There's a couple of those in the back. And then uh, this is one of the newer books, which is new since I was here last, Building Blocks for Solid Foundations. And this is, um, covers all the fundamentals of the faith from Hebrews 4 uh, and Hebrews 5. Uh, oh, sorry, Hebrews 5 and uh, Hebrews 6. Um, and so um, th this is an excellent uh, foundation for new believers and uh, quite a few churches are using these as uh, study guides for their home groups. Um, each uh, chapter has a series of questions at the back which is designed for discussion and for that kind of thing. So you can either work through it on your own uh, or you can um, uh, use it as a, as a study guide. Uh, just, a, uh, just a warning uh, that there is a chapter in the back that deals with Christians falling away. So if you don't like that doctrine, it's, it's in there. And, and then I have one only left of these. This is uh, um, a story written by Brother Willie Burton. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with him, but he was a great missionary in the Congo, one of the great influences in my life. And uh, this is, uh, the book is When God Makes a Missionary. I had, to, I had to edit it because it had been republished and messed around. So we took a long time to reconstitute the thing to what it should be. Um, and it's the story of my great-grandfather as a missionary in South Africa amongst the Zulu. So we, we have one of those. And then we, we also have these... Um, and, and I really don't like to do this, but we, we have these memory sticks, which uh, you may be familiar with. Contain, this one contains now 825 uh, studies on most of the books in the New Testament, verse by verse. And um, they, uh, well, I've run out, and so I'm going to give one to somebody who can copy them for you. Uh, but I, unfortunately, I don't even have enough to go to all the churches here in Melbourne, so I'm going to need it back. So uh, whoever is technical can put this on the hard drive and then make it available. It's a 16-gig uh, memory stick. Uh, we use this particularly in Zimbabwe for um, the uh, pastors there uh, who don't have access to commentaries. And so each uh, file you know, gives you exactly what chapter we use, and uh, so if you need a commentary on something, and obviously it may not apply to you, um, you're able to look up that particular verse and listen to the uh, teaching on that particular verse. Um, but, but also it is, um, uh, I've had a number of reports that this is an excellent tool for people who can't sleep. Um, uh, seriously, I've had many people say that they listen to it when they go to bed and they fall, to, fall asleep to it. So if you, if you have trouble sleeping, then uh, you, you need one of those. Amen. All right, let's get to the word. And let's start again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23.
<clears throat> Let's read 23 through the end of the chapter. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And so in verse 23 then he uh, describes the whole man. And he describes him as being three parts, body, soul and spirit, or from the inside out, spirit, soul and body. And so we... Uh, just going to put this back where, like we had it last night. Um, and so we have on the outside the body, we have the soul, and we have the spirit. And we said that the body is obviously the external part which we can see, which we are very familiar with. Um, and at the same time, the scripture speaks of this as the flesh, but at the same time, we need to be uh, very careful that when we come to the concept of the flesh, the flesh is not just the body. The flesh is a combination of the body and the soul, or a, of the carnal mind, and we'll, we'll uh, deal with this as we go along uh, this evening, I trust. The soul really is the real me, the person who lives inside of the tent. And that consists of uh, three parts, the emotions, and uh, if you weren't here last night, if you can't uh, read the writing, it's because it's in Greek. Um, the will and the mind. And according to Ephesians, uh, to Hebrews 4.12, the mind consists of the thoughts and the intents or intentions of the mind. The mind is also often called the heart. Now, I know we've covered, but I don't want to spend too much time recapping. Um, uh, and uh, just for those who uh, didn't get last night, and if you struggle tonight, and I know these things are technical, and let me just explain what I said, what I said again last night, and that is that, that we're trying in these first two sessions, uh, so last night and tonight, to establish the, uh, the technical aspects, and then we're going to spend the next two sessions going through various scriptures, uh, looking how this plays out, and how this applies to the scripture, uh, and how this applies to us. Um, and so if you um, want to catch up or if you uh, struggle to, to, to grab hold of what we are sharing this evening, it is available on YouTube. If you go to Sun Valley Community Church um, on YouTube, uh, the, f the four series that I taught very recently in um, Sun Valley uh, uh, is available there. So the soul then is the place where I feel, it's the place where I decide, and it's the place where I think. Uh, just by the way, the mind is not the brain. Uh, the brain is simply a computer through which the mind works. Uh, now, I know that confuses some, and, that, and I just throw that out there just to impress you. Um, so the mind really is, the, is, is, is me. And, and in that mind, I think and I make decisions to do certain things. And we dealt with some of the ramifications of that last night. 
So what I want to do this evening to begin with is to speak about the Spirit. Now remember we saw that in the book of Genesis that when God made man, he made his body out of the dust of the earth, he breathed his spirit, uh, the, the Hebrew ruach or the New, New, uh, New Testament word, Greek word pneuma, he breathed into man his spirit, man became a living soul or a living being in the New King James. And so God puts his spirit into man. And remember, we also looked at Ecclesiastes, which says that the spirit at death returns to God who gave it. We spoke about the Lord Jesus at the cross, that his body goes into the grave, that his soul goes into Hades. Today you will be with me in paradise. And his spirit returns to God because he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So we see how those things play out. Now, the spirit... Particularly, we need to look then how this relates to the unbeliever. So let's go to the book of Genesis. And chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And verse 17. Now you know the verse, but I want, to, want us to look at it again because we need to... Just get it from the scriptures. So Genesis 2.17 But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The day you eat you will surely die. Now when did Adam die? Physically he died 900 years later. 950 years, if I remember correctly. So his body began to die at that point. He began the process of, that all of us go through, of decay and of getting old and eventually of dying. But God says the day you eat thereof you will die. Now remember that we believe, or certainly I believe, that when God says it was evening and morning, the first day of creation, that that is a 24-hour day. It's not ages or long periods of time. It's a literal 24 hours. And whenever that word is used in the Old Testament, it applies to a literal day. So when God says, in the day that you eat, you will die, it does not mean in a period of a thousand years. I've heard people say, well, it simply means that Adam would die and a thousand years is one day, one day is a thousand years, and so Adam would die somewhere in the next thousand years. No, that's not what God said. He says, that day you will die. And remember the chapter before, we find the day there uh, seven times, if I remember right, and each time it's a 24-hour period. So what died of Adam? His spirit died. He, sp he became spiritually dead. Now, th there are some caveats here, and there are some uh, problems here, which I'm going to explore in a moment. So, Adam's spirit dies. So, in the unbeliever, and I'm, uh, I know you may say, well, you know, there, there's, a, there's some questions, and I'll try and answer those questions in a moment. But in the unbeliever, the spirit then is dead, or, as I prefer to put it, dormant. It is not entirely absent because if the spirit was totally withdrawn from him, he would cease to exist. 
Because we, we speak of the Spirit as being the glue that holds the whole thing together. When God withdraws His Spirit, the whole thing falls apart, the body goes into the grave, and so on. And so the Spirit is there, but it is no longer in communion with God. God is no longer working through the Spirit. And so Paul speaks about, and we're going to look at some of those verses in a moment, that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. But now here's the thing. There is still an aspect of God in the unbeliever. And that aspect, and, and, and it's very difficult to describe, uh, to find words, as I said last night, it's, some of these words have all sorts of strange meanings and connotations. And so when I was working on this a few weeks ago, um, I, I came up with the word spark. There's a spark of God in there. And, and I thought, well, that, that describes it pretty well. And then I ran it by one of my colleagues that I check, my, check things out with uh, when I'm not absolutely sure. And he said, no, 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 there's a, there's a problem with that word. He wasn't sure what the problem was. So I went online and I discovered that in New Age and in Gnosticism, they have this idea of the divine spark, uh, which is a totally Gnostic idea. So we can't speak about a spark. Uh, but there is a God component even in the unbeliever. And so John says in chapter 1 of his gospel that he is that light that lights up every man that comes into the world. Now it's a verse that we don't often consider and we don't think about it and I've never heard anyone preach on it actually. But he is that light, speaking of Jesus, that lights up every man who comes into the world. So what John is saying, that everyone who is born has some divine light within them. So they have a knowledge of good and evil. Paul calls this in the book of Romans, conscience. Let me stick to my notes, otherwise we're going to jump all over the place. So unbelievers have life. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. I hate notes, but they're important sometimes. Otherwise, I'll never get through what I have to get through. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So when he says we were dead in trespasses and sins, it really applies to two things. First of all, spiritually we are dead, out of touch with God. God is not resident within us, but also we are under the sentence of death. So when Adam, when God said that day you're going to die, spiritually he died. But he also immediately was under the sentence of death, of physical death. And so he was what Americans call a dead man walking. A dead man walking, for those who don't know, is a man on death row uh, who is uh, destined to be executed. Um, they don't execute many uh, in America anymore, but they still have death row. And so when he walks his final walk to uh, the place of execution, whatever method the particular state uses, they will, uh, they will call out dead man walking. 
and the prisoners turn, the other prisoners turn their faces away from him. They don't want to look on him. So he is dead for all practical purposes. It's just a matter of time before the uh, execution happens and it works out. And so the same with Adam. He was a dead man walking. It was 950 years before the sentence would be carried out, as it were. For us, it's 70 years, maybe 80 years, maybe 90 years, um, if we're very strong. And so we die then spiritually. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And remember that even in the book of Revelation, at the great white throne judgment, remember that those who are dead without Christ are raised in the second resurrection. Now, I know we're covering a lot of stuff, but just make these connections. There's a second resurrection, and it says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before the throne. So they had been resurrected for the purpose of eternal damnation. And they stand before the throne, but they are called the dead, because they are under the sentence of death. It's just the final sentence that needs to be, uh, to be proclaimed at that white throne, and they are then cast into the lake of fire. And so those who are unsaved are born dead in their sins. They die dead in their sins. All right, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This I say then, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Now there's a whole bunch of words there, but look at what he says. So he says that we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles in the futility of their mind. So because they are spiritually dead, their minds are futile. Their minds go nowhere. They think in circles. Remember Romans chapter 1, you find a huge description of this, exactly this problem. That they, their thinking is circuitous. It doesn't end anywhere. It doesn't end with God. And so, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding, their mind, and their spirit is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God, so there is no life in them. Those who are born again have the life of God within us. And we have passed from death to life because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. So he's using many terms to describe the darkness that comes into the soul of the unbeliever. Now remember when he spoke about the tabernacle yesterday. And the tabernacle has the holiest of all. And that is where God's presence dwells. And it was, it was revealed, manifested in the Old Testament as a bright light. The Shekinah or the glory of God. There were no uh, windows in there. There was no lamps or lights in there. The lamps were in the, uh, in the holy place, but not in the holiest of all. But God's presence illuminated that place. Just like in the New Jerusalem, remember there will be no sun or moon, because He will be the light of that, of that great city. And so, but when God's presence is withdrawn from that tabernacle, and it wasn't really withdrawn from the tabernacle, but remember that when the ark is lost, 
Eli names or his grandson is named Ichabod. The glory has departed. Darkness has come upon the nation of Israel. And so, without the light of God, there is darkness in the light, life of the believer. So, Romans chapter 2, verse 14, if you can turn there for me. Um, and it would be good if we can follow these because they are long uh, quotes and they contain some details that are important. For when Gentiles, Romans 2.14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law. What he's speaking about, obviously, is if you go into the remotest Amazon jungle or the remotest uh, equatorial jungles in Africa, people who have never been confronted with the gospel, you'll find that they have laws. All tribes and nations have laws. And those laws mirror the Ten Commandments. They generally have laws against taking another man's wife, taking another man's possessions, killing a man, and those kinds of things. And so what Paul is saying then, by, they do by nature the things of the law. And he says, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now that's a misquoted uh, passage. It doesn't mean that they can do what they like. We, we use that, we, we say, oh, he's a law to himself. In other words, he's lawless, he just does whatever he wants to do. That, that is not what he says here. But he is saying that they don't have the law from the scriptures, but they still have the law. Because the law is written in their hearts, in the spirit. And so, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Now let's have a look at that. So, the law is written in their hearts. Now remember I said last night, sometimes the mind is the heart, sometimes the spirit is, and it's difficult sometimes to separate the two. But the law is written in their hearts, it's inside of them. And that's all that's important at this, at this stage. But their conscience bearing witness... What is the conscience? Oh, we say the cult conscience is a cultural thing. So those of us who are older have a certain conscience concerning homosexuality because that's our culture. But the new generation has no conscience concerning homosexuality because they have a different culture. Is that how conscience works? Is that what Paul is saying? No. He is saying that conscience is something put inside and which accuses or excuses us. And that conscience is God, the, an element of God. And I, and I find it difficult to describe this. I don't really have good terms for these things. But there is clearly something within every person and we call it conscience and they call it conscience. But that is placed there by God. And that conscience either accuses them when they sin or excuses them when they do the right thing. So you can take a baby and very quickly that baby knows the difference between right and wrong. 
even without the parents teaching them the difference between right and wrong. A story I heard once that really describes it well was this, this preacher who had raised his kids uh, very carefully and not exposing them to the world and no television, none of these things. And uh, his, his, his little two or three year old boy, one day he came home and you can see how old the story is because uh, uh, when he came home he found that there were two little lines cut in the cheek of the little boy. And uh, those days razors had double edges. That, that's before, uh, before John's uh, day when they had single edges. Double-edged razor. Makes a very distinct mark. And uh, the father said to him, what did you do? Oh no, I did nothing. I fell. Now his father had never said to him, don't use my razor. And obviously he'd seen his dad use the razor, so he thought he would use it. But he knew what he did was wrong. And he knew how to lie. And this preacher was devastated because he says, I never took my son on my lap and said, now little boy, this is how you lie. We had never lied to him. We had never, we'd always sought to speak the truth to him. And yet he knew how to lie. So he knew instinctively what was right and wrong. And he knew instinctively how to cover his sin. And so that is conscience. Now look further what he says. Uh, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So conscience is convicting them. But the thoughts which is in the soul is now accusing or excusing them. So it's more than just a subconscious thing. But that which is instinctive, because of the Holy Spirit, because of the, the element of God with even the unbeliever, that is not just an instinctive thing, but it is an intellectual thing which you can think through. Because their conscience accuses them, and then they rationalize it in their minds. And their thoughts then either accuse them or excuse them. And so it's, it accuses them based on culture, based on outside external things, or it accuses them. All right. So, so what we can see then is that even in the Gentiles there is this thing uh, called conscience. Then the scripture I quoted earlier, John 1.9, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And so everyone who is born has a God consciousness. And I hope it's not a bad term, that one. Because it looks like most of these terms are, are bad. And so we speak about a vacuum, a void, which only God can fill. And we see this in the world. There's nothing that can take this place which has been reserved for God in the heart of every person who is born in the world. But we try and fill that with entertainment, with drugs, with alcohol, with all sorts of things, with chasing after pleasure and this thing and that thing, in an attempt to fill that emptiness. And we can see this in the world. We see this happening all the time. 
And they don't understand that in fact there is only one thing that can fill that void. And that is God's Spirit and God's Spirit alone. You know, it's, it's like those, um, uh, those Tupperware things that we used to have for kids. A ball. And there was a star and a block, a square and a round thing and an oval thing. And, and only one thing would go into that hole. You couldn't put the star into the square hole or the round hole or the oval hole. Only one thing fits. And there's only one thing that fits in here. And that is God's Spirit. And you can try and plug anything in there that you like, but it's never going to work. It's never going to fill that void. Now, the, the other thing that then happens is that uh, Paul writes in Ephesians about the conscience, and in Timothy, about the conscience being seared, being seared, cauterized. And so we know what happens when a doctor cauterizes a wound. He uses a hot iron and he burns it and it closes it up and it deadens it. And so the unbeliever has this conscience but his conscience becomes seared and it becomes cauterized so that it becomes inoperative or inop it doesn't work anymore, it doesn't function anymore. Now let me, let me share with you some real deep theology that my mom shared with me when I was this high. I had taken from her purse a tiki. Anyone know what a tiki is? Oh, we have some folk who know what a tiki is. It's equivalent of two and a half cents. The little coin, two and a half cents. Well, you could, you could buy quite a lot for a, for a tiki those days. I'd stolen a tiki, and she, she knew. Uh, she knew how much there was, and obviously I was the only most likely culprit. And uh, when I'd come back from the shop and I'd bought the, uh, the chewing gum, which I wasn't allowed to have anyhow, um, she took me aside. And uh, she said, look, inside of us, is a thing we call a conscience. And it's in the form of a little triangle. And every time we do something wrong, this little triangle spins and hurts us. And we know we've done the wrong thing. But every time we ignore it, the little edges on the triangle wear off. So that eventually it's just round and you can't feel it anymore. How's that for deep theology? Well, it certainly got through to me. I understood and I never forgot that. But that's the seared conscience that Paul speaks about. And so you get to a point where the unbeliever gets to the point then where nothing penetrates anymore. There is no awareness of God. There is no conscience of God. There is no conscience of right and wrong. The only conscience he has of right and wrong are simply what he has learnt in his mind through culture and through his environment. But in terms of God, there is nothing anymore. Now, if we go to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23. Colossians 
And, and here's another place where the King James is a little bit better for some reason. And anyhow, let's, uh, Colossians 2.23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. And there the old King James uses the word will worship. And the will worship is the literal translation from the Greek and that's why I think it's a better translation in this case. Will worship. False humility, neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The will is in the soul. And so when Paul uses this term, and he's using this term of people who have an external form of religion. Remember in uh, Timothy he speaks about a form of godliness, but denying its power, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so he's speaking of the same kind of people here who have will worship. In other words, they make a decision to worship God, but it is all in the realm of the soul. It is all in the realm of the will and the mind and the emotions. It has nothing to do with the spirit. And so there are many who worship God. I, I lose track of it's Saturday today, so tomorrow. There will be many people in churches tomorrow all over the world who have no spiritual connection with God, who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, who are not spiritually alive, but they will go to church because they make a decision and they say, I am going to be religious. I am going to be whatever kind of religion, Buddhist, Christian, whatever. And so I am going to worship, but it is purely in the realm of the soul. It's purely in the realm of the mind and the will. It has nothing to do with the spirit. And the point that Paul is driving home here in Colossians is that really what we need is we need spiritual worship. Now I'm going to speak probably at the last session about worship and you're going to see how this all fits together when it comes to the issue of worship. And so they have an appearance of wisdom. So by applying your soul, and I keep rubbing these things up, by applying your mind and your will, you can have an appearance of being wise and of being spiritual. So many people in the world are called spiritual, particularly new age kind people. Oh, he's, he's a very spiritual person. Well, it has nothing to do with the spirit being alive. They are just as dead in their spirits as anyone else. It simply means that they, they are emotionally probably a little more attuned to airy-fairy nonsense. Smoke and mirrors. Whatever it is that makes them seem to be spiritual. It's will worship. It has an appearance. But there is no substance to it whatsoever. So you can see then that without the spirit being alive and in union and in contact with God, nothing is happening. It is just as dead as the most rank unbeliever. And so clearly what we need is we need the Spirit to come alive. What time did we start? Next one is 7.30, right? 
Okay. Now I can't even read the arms. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's then speak of, let, let me introduce this and then we, we'll take the questions uh, because we want to leave enough time to uh, do the most important part and that is to eat Sister Ella's tea, uh, cake. <laughs> so let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. You may still be there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Very simple verse. So we understand now that we were dead spiritually. Now we are made spiritually alive. So suddenly that part within me which was dormant before is activated and becomes alive. Now remember, part of this process, when Adam sinned and he died spiritually, his fellowship with God was broken at that moment. Now here's something you can think about, and I'm not suggesting this as, as doctrine. But you remember it speaks about God uh, communing with Adam in the cool of the day. I'm not sure how that worked. Because what kind of body does God have? He's a spirit. So how does Adam see God? Now I understand there are theophanies in the Old Testament. God can take on a body for the sake of, of revealing himself as he did to Abraham on the plains of Mamre and so on. But Adam is spiritually alive. God is a spirit. There is a possibility that God did not physically meet with Adam but he communicated with him spiritually, spirit to spirit. Because how does God communicate with us today? In the spirit. He doesn't come here physically. I mean, I, I wish I could see him, but he doesn't. But he is here in the spirit. And he communicates with my spirit, through my spirit. And so I don't think it's unrealistic, and I don't think it's heresy, I hope it's not, that God maybe didn't come down physically to communicate, but there would be a time in the day, at the end of the day, that God would communicate with Adam spirit to spirit. Because God doesn't need to speak words. Remember we spoke about this last night, that the, the, the body uh, communicates through the five senses. That's how we communicate with the world, and that's how the world communicates with us. But God does not need to go through the senses to speak to us. In fact, he doesn't speak through the senses. Yes, we minister the word of God, we, we encourage one another, and we use our voice, and we uh, listen with our ears, we read the scriptures with our eyes, uh, but th at the end of the day, all of that is, is in the realm of the flesh. It is very ineffectual, unless it is accompanied by God's spirit, speaking to my spirit communicating with me and teaching me. And I, and I often say to the folk in the, in, the, in the church back home that if you come to church on Sunday morning and that's the first time you hear anything of God, there's a problem. You should have heard from God during the week and hopefully all I'm doing, if you are spiritual, all I'm doing is simply confirming what God has already said to you in the Spirit. 
You may not have been able to vocalize it, but you knew it by the Spirit. I, I think we, we all know the story, and I'm going to uh, close on this one, and then we'll, we'll take the questions, of Helen Keller. Helen Keller was born deaf and blind. Now, remember the five senses, so if we can't hear and we can't see, well, we're left with taste and feel and smell. How do you communicate anything through those things? Now, they were able to communicate with her and to eventually teach her through vibration and, and uh, I think they used a balloon and she could feel the um, vibrations of the speaker uh, come through the balloon um, and they were able to communicate with her. And somewhere along the line, someone shared with her the gospel and spoke to her about the Lord Jesus. And her testimony was, I knew that. I knew he died for me. I just didn't know his name. How did she know? God had communicated with her spirit. God had spoken to her and revealed to her the truth. And folks, here's, here's one, of the, uh, one of the principles that I trust that you can remember, and if, if you forget everything else, if you can remember this. Unless you hear God speak in the Spirit, your religion is simply in the realm of the soul. It is soulish, and it is very ineffectual in changing us. Now, I want to bring a, a, a warning. We're not suggesting that God speaks contrary to His Word. God does not contradict Himself. He does not speak contrary to His Word. And He does not speak in addition to His Word. He has spoken. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. God in divers times and in sundry manners has spoke to the fathers through the prophets. Has in these last days spoken by His Son. He has spoken. Not continuing to reveal, but he is illuminating that which is in his word. But unless it's a spiritual experience, all it is is a mental experience which cannot change me. Folk, I have a lot of experience of dealing with professors in theology, both in working for a university in South Africa and in my studies. And I've come across many professors of theology with multiple doctorates who can argue about every detail in that book but they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ they are not born again it's all in the realm of the mind there is nothing spiritual whatsoever and folk I'm deeply concerned that there are many Christians today because of the nonsense that goes on in charismatic churches and let's just be blunt about this. And the excesses and the physical stuff and the soulishness and carnality and the fleshly worship, that there is a move away that there are some Christians who say, no, this is fake and this is shallow, and they move away from that. But in the process, what they move to is an intellectual worship, which is just as empty as a carnal fleshly worship. And remember that Paul addresses these two kinds of people in the book of Corinthians. And he says, the Jews seek a sign. They like the 
hoopla and the noise and the stuff. And the Greeks, they're more intellectual. They want wisdom. And Paul says none of them them are any good. I'm not going to give you either. Paul could give them science and he could give them wisdom. But he says I'm not going to give you those things because they cannot save. The only thing that saves is the message, the foolishness of the message of the cross. That's the only thing that can save. And so, let's not fool ourselves and say, well, we're not those who worship in the body because that's that kind of worship. We're more intellectual. No, that is just as shallow and just as void of the Spirit. What we need is God's Spirit communicating truth with my spirit through His Word. As I read His Word, He illuminates not my mind, but my spirit. I instinctively know things. And folk, we, we, we're afraid of that because there's all sorts of nonsense that comes out of that. And we say, well, you know, you know it's this, this touchy-feely stuff and, you know, I feel this and I feel that. And in the process, we're rejecting the Spirit of God who does communicate with us in a sub-intellectual, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but without my mind, I just know something. Now, it doesn't mean that I must act on that intuition, and I use that word very carefully, the spiritual intuition, doesn't mean I must act on that. I must check it against the Word of God. I must make sure that I've heard God and not my flesh, but I cannot reject it. When we speak about discerning, uh, discerning uh, truth from error, and, and a brother asked a question concerning that last night, when it comes to discerning truth and error, the first line of defense is the spiritual realm. You listen to something, you read a book, you watch a video or something, and there's something in your, in your deep down that says, there's something wrong here. Listen to it. Now, you cannot reject it just on the basis of what you feel. But there's a warning going on. And you, you, you disconnect that warning at your own peril. When I was in the Air Force... And I didn't fly, but I flew with pilots many, many times. And the aeroplanes have warnings when the airframe is being overstressed. In other words, when you're making the thing do what it wasn't designed to do. And the buzzers go off. But the pilots also knew how to pull the breakers, the trip switches or fuses, whatever you want to call them. They knew where they were and they would disconnect them. And then they could do whatever they wanted to do and the thing wouldn't tell them what you're doing is dangerous. And folk, God through His Spirit has given those little alarm bells sometimes and we disconnect them, we say we ignore them to our own peril. And so when we hear the alarm, what I need to do is go to the Word, check it against the Word and invariably you'll find that the Word will confirm the thing that you were concerned about. Amen. So let's uh, answer a few questions Um, I think we've run a little longer than I was planning, but uh, let's try and answer the questions. Otherwise, we'll leave more time in the next session. How do you explain when when God made um, uh, closing for them, when they were separated from Him and sinned? Was that in the spirit, or how how do we explain that? It was uh, conscience. So it was not a, 
uh, animal killed that he made clothes for, for Adam and Eve? No, um, or how, how do we see that? Sorry, I don't quite understand the you question. You know, when, when um, it was an animal killed to mm -hmm, make, him, mm -hmm. make them a, a coat, yeah. when they were driven out yeah. uh, to cover their sin yes. or nakedness, mm. was that done in the spirit? Or was God there? Or how, how we explain Oh, I see that? what you mean. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, I don't know. I, I little, don't know. I have a little bit of a question there. The other, yeah. other question well, I have... Well, I mean, you know, the other side of it is that you know, is the question is, did God use a knife? No, no. Well, well I'm a knife maker. I, I like know. to think that he did use yeah, a knife. I mean, it's just... Um, <laughs> I um, don't know. Yeah. yeah. Then the other thing is, when Adam and Eve, um, would Adam and Eve remember the time with God when, they were spirit, when the spirit was dead, when they came uh, out of the... Um, could they tell their, their children about God or was that totally dead? No, I think that there was still there was still a God consciousness, um, and there was clearly a memory. Yeah, so they because, killed her because um, Cain killed his brother yeah. right away. And and clearly Abel, you know, did God speak to Abel directly concerning and and, and to Cain as yeah. to what was an acceptable sacrifice or not, or did Adam teach them because mm -hmm. God had revealed that to to him? So so God is still working, and and remember there were still some righteous men like Methuselah. Uh, who um, who was still walking with with God? Yeah, yeah. Adam and Eve, um, through their conscience, they they grabbed some fig leaves and um, yes. they they put that together for their garments. Yeah. Uh, but then when God showed up, He said, "No, that won't do. It's it's no good. Yeah. yeah. You have to have my remedy." Yeah. Yeah, so, so, yeah. so, and and yeah, and so that clearly illustrates the um, the, the function of the of conscience. So they knew the moment they you know, they sinned, they knew that even though at that point, I mean, God, they they died spiritually the moment they sinned. I mean, I don't believe there's a delayed action. You know, the, the, the that second that Adam ate of it, yeah. he died, and, and Eve likewise. Yeah, and yeah. and so and yet after that, a few seconds after that. They realize that we're, we're naked. So you can see that even though they're now spiritually dead, conscience is still active. Yeah, conscience is still active. Yes, yeah. it is. No, clearly, clearly Satan we know because he appears as a serpent. Yes. And she's communicating with the, the serpent. But even then, we don't know exactly, you know, uh, he may have been, he, he seems to have been upright in one yeah. way or the other. Yeah. Um, but, but no, he's clearly, ha and, and, and of course, uh, I don't think that that's his permanent form, because clearly he took that form at that time. Yeah. Um, and yet Paul says that he sometimes disguises himself as an angel yeah, of light. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. the devil clearly has the power to some extent to take different forms mm -hmm. in order to um, achieve his work. But that must have been a communication between Eve and... A verbal communication, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, um, I, I think it's, it's a very good question, Ella. Just one scripture verse, John 1.18. It says, no one has seen God at any time. And I think to your point earlier on, um, if Adam had seen him, it would have, you know, that, yeah, that scripture would be contradicting yeah. to that scripture. But 
physically, I, I believe they, you know, there was a death. You know, the animal had to die, and that was the institution of the blood yeah. sacrifice, yeah. Yeah. which then came later. Exactly. And look, there's a lot of things even in Genesis where we've got the written word, but there's things which one day we will know for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, and, and let me make it clear that, that I'm, it's purely in the realm of speculation. When I say that God... Uh, may not have appeared in a physical form. It's, it's purely specula speculation. It, it, is not, uh, it is not doctrine. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the same way, we've got to be very careful uh, about when, we, when it's speculation and when it's clearly taught in Scripture. Um, I, I rec recently was part of a discussion um, or witnessed a discussion. I didn't really partake, but um, as to whether Adam was present when Satan deceived Eve. And as, uh, as you may know, there are people who say, well, Adam wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was off doing something else. And the devil waited till Eve was on her own. And then he was able. Now, it's purely speculation. We cannot build a doctrine uh, around that. Your, your earlier point about um, the spirit. Um, for us, it's most important to be filled with the spirit. Yes. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you can then receive God's mind on things, his revelation. And, and that's, that's what you need is that. You don't need what some bloke read in a book, uh, wrote in a book. You don't need yeah, that. But yeah. you need what God yes. puts in you. Yeah. That, that's exactly what's needed is that because that's his life. All right. Uh, good, good point, and, and I'm not going to comment on that because it's going to take too long, so I'm going to uh, tr try and remember to open on that because I do draw a distinction between the filling or baptism of the Holy Spirit as a separate experience, but that initially, and, um, and maybe I shouldn't say this now because it may confuse you, but uh, let me plant the seed, that when I get saved, the Spirit of God comes and dwells within me. Uh, so there's there, there are two ways or two modes, if you will, of the Holy Spirit coming in us. Uh, the, the one at salvation and then the second empowering at the baptismal filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I want to spend a bit of time on that because it's, a very, uh, it's a, an important part of this, of this concept.